Well, it's good to be with you. Wasn't quite sure I was going to make it here this morning. Went through several deluges. I thought that I should change my sermon to preach about Noah and the ark. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, the thunder, the, the rain pouring down. I feel uh, very humbled and genuinely honored uh, to take on some of the responsibility uh, for pastoring you. Uh, those responsibilities will be uh, greatly limited because I'm greatly limited. Uh, but I look forward to being with you and um, there will be countless numbers of times when I ask you once more what your name is. Uh, I have 26 grandchildren. I can't remember their names. <laughs> so, so you're in good shape and uh, just be patient with me. Um, I hope that uh, we'll come to feel a real bond of uh, friendship uh, as we work together and as we continue the search to find that man who will be uh, your next senior pastor. And again, I encourage you in regards to all of that. For seven years, I pastored a church of just about this size uh, in southern Illinois in a little town called Sparta, a town of 4,300 people. And uh, I got called elsewhere, but as all pastors would understand, I then began to wonder and fret about, okay, who's going to be the next man to stand in this pulpit? Who's going to be the next man to love these people and to attempt to shepherd them? Well, the next man who will be known to some of you in my situation was Brian Chapel. Uh, I take from the response of a few of you, you know who that is. Probably one of the princes of preaching as far as our denomination is concerned. So I encourage you, you have no idea as of yet who that next individual will be. But the Lord does. The Lord does. So we'll get there. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, come to your word, I pray that um, you would uh, bless us and uh, I pray that uh, you would lead us um, words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, that they would please, uh, that they would prove to be pleasing and uh, acceptable to you. Uh, Father, encourage us, instruct us, challenge us, build us up once more in that holy faith delivered unto the saints. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. My father-in-law, my in-laws, they lived in northeast Pennsylvania. They're now both with the Lord, but uh, they, used to, uh, they used to heat their home, uh, partially heat their home by the use of their fireplace. And um, I can clearly see my father-in-law in the morning stirring whatever embers were left until they would blaze up and ignite the new logs that he was placing in the fireplace. 
Well, I want to testify to the fact that the public prayers of the senior associate pastor of Covenant Church, where I was pastor for many years, the prayers, the public prayers of Eric Mullinex have for years, years, stirred the smoldering embers of my mind and my, my heart so that they would blaze up anew, blaze up once more in awe of the triune God's grace, mercy, and love. But now I ask you to look at John chapter 17 because even more so, my mind and heart are just overwhelmingly rekindled as I listen to Jesus. I listen to Jesus pray in John chapter 17. And I pray that that will prove to be true for you also over the next three weeks. This morning in verses 1 through 5, we're going to listen as Jesus prays for himself. And then next week in verses 6 through 19, we're going to hear Jesus pray for his disciples. And then, in two weeks, Lord willing, in verses 20 through 26, you're going to hear Jesus pray for you. You're going to hear Jesus pray for all of you who by Jesus praying for you, for all of you who by grace through faith have embraced him as Savior and Lord and King. Now I asked you to turn to John 17, but before we listen in as Jesus prays, we need to take a moment to remember what's going on here, to remember what immediately preceded Jesus' prayer in the upper room. So turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him, and here he knows he knows that the hour has come, that the hour is at hand, when like a grain of wheat, he must fall into the ground and die so that he might bear much fruit. You know what that fruit is? It's you. The fruit that he will bear is you. It's you. The coming hour of which Jesus speaks will be his moment of final humiliation. Now just listen. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, Paul talks about that moment of final humiliation. He, he talks in broad terms about our Lord's humiliation, but he leads us to that moment of final humiliation. Paul writes, in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, he humbled himself, if you will. He humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now, now that moment of final humiliation is at hand. In just a few short hours, I want you to get the tension here. In just a few short hours, I mean, probably less than 12 hours, that moment of final humiliation will take place. Jesus will be, be, he will be betrayed, he will be arrested, falsely accused, he will be physically tortured, he'll be unjustly sentenced to suffer the the horror of death by crucifixion, and as the bearer of your sins, he will suffer the greater horror of being momentarily forsaken by his Father. My God, my God, he will cry from that cross. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he bears your sins. What a moment. It's really beyond my comprehension. God the Father turns his back for a moment in time, turns his back upon God the Son because he bears your sins. He bears my sins. That's what's about to happen. Now, in John 13, I'm not going to read this, but just in John 13, Jesus, knowing the hour has come for him to depart out of the world and go to the Father, he gathers with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. But before doing so, Remember, Paul said he took upon himself the form of a servant. So before celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus humbles himself, and he takes on the role of a servant, and he washes their feet. In that culture, there was no more humiliating task than to be asked to wash someone's feet. He washes their feet. And then, here in John 13, in verse 27, Jesus will tell Judas, who he knows is going to betray him, Jesus will tell Judas what you're going to do. Do quickly. Then after Jesus, I'm sorry, after Judas departs for the next several chapters, Jesus speaks and sings 
and he prays with the eleven. Those are wonderfully rich chapters, but we're going to focus on the last of those chapters, and that is John chapter 17. Now, some call some call Jesus' prayer in John 17, some refer to it as his high priestly prayer. Some call it his prayer of consecration. Now let me say a word to you. Let me just stop here a moment. I've said this so many times to my congregation, and I want you to hear this. You hear that noise that just disrupted us? You hear it? When you no longer hear that noise disrupting us, that's when you're in trouble. When you hear that noise, you praise the Lord. You give thanks to God above. Okay? So, some refer to this prayer as, our Lord, as the high priestly prayer, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Others refer to it as his prayer of consecration. I choose to call it our Lord's Prayer. I know, I know, I know. But what we traditionally call the Lord's Prayer is in fact the disciples' prayer. It's what we're supposed to pray. But in John 17, it is Jesus who prays. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for you. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 5. Now, as I read, just take note. You might, if you mark your Bible, you might want to underline this. Take note of how many times Jesus speaks of glory. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Five times, Jesus speaks of glory. The root word for glory in Greek is doxa. It's the word from which we get our word doxology. A doxology is a word of praise and thanksgiving to God for who he is and for what he has done. And interestingly, when the word doxa is used in Scripture in reference to the Father, the Son, or to the Holy Spirit, it almost always refers to a visible display of the triune God's splendor. Linda and I, And my wife's not with me, and there'll be many weeks when she won't be with me. And please understand, she has responsibilities back at Covenant Church, and she has family responsibilities that may well keep you away. I mean, she's got 26 grandchildren to keep track of, and you know how grandmothers are. 
So, but Linda and I viewed in the Tower of London the royal jewel, jewels of England. Crowns, scepters, maces, orbs, ornate garments, gold, precious jewels in abundance. What were they for? They were for the purpose, they, they were, their intention was to display the glory of the rulers of the British Empire. Well, now here in John 17, Jesus asks that his and the Father's divine splendor be visibly displayed for others to see. You know, in the Old Testament, the Lord visibly displayed his glory atop Mount Sinai, much like what I experienced this morning. He displayed it through thunder and lightning and a thick cloud. And, you know, in the wilderness, his, his glory is revealed in a fiery cloud that leads the Israelites through the wilderness. And then later on in the history of his Old Testament people, they will witness his glory as a blazing cloud engulfs both the tabernacle and then the temple. Well, in Scripture, as you know, a few individuals caught a glimpse of God's glory. I mean, just recently in the history that we're dealing with here in the Gospels, just recently, Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' glory atop the Mount of Transfiguration. And let me tell you something. Now listen to me. If you have eyes to see, you've also caught a glimpse of the Lord's glory. What does the psalmist teach us? He teaches us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I mean, surely, surely you've been awed at some time or other by the, the glory of a sunrise or of a sunset or a, a night sky filled with stars or with a bright full moon. I remember the first time I saw the majesty of the Rocky Mountains. It took my breath away. The glory of God's creation. I had the experience once of viewing out an airplane window on a perfectly clear day, the glory of the European Alps. It was magnificent. I've seen the Lord's glory displayed in the, in the beauty of my wife's flower garden. And if you have eyes to see, the psalmist says that all of creation displays for you his glory. If you have eyes to see. Now, most significantly in the gospel, where is the glory of God displayed? The, God's glory is visibly displayed through Jesus. As John testifies back in John chapter 1, verse 14, John testifies, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Come on, I know you're Presbyterians, but join in here. And we have seen his what? Glory. His glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I've never seen Jesus. One day I will. 
But I've seen his glory in the wonders of his creation. I've seen the glory of his hand through the unfolding of his providential purposes in my life. I've heard him speak in my mind and heart as I've read the Holy Scriptures. Well, here in John 17, verse 4, Jesus tells the Father, I visibly displayed your glory through his life, his words, his deeds. Jesus could have testified, I showed them your glory by turning water into wine, by giving sight to the blind, by calming the raging sea, by, by raising Lazarus from the dead. I, I revealed the glory of your grace by proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. I taught them that I am the light of the world, that I am the bread of life, that I am the promised living water. I told them by their seeing and hearing me. I've told them. I've shown them that I am the great I am. By all his deeds and words, Jesus visibly displayed his and the Father's glory. But now, here in John 17, as the hour of his humiliation draws near, Jesus prays, now glorify me. Now, at this moment, in these circumstances, glorify me that I might glorify you. Okay, again, look back at John chapter 12, verse 27. John chapter 12, verse 27. By the way, you don't know me very well, but you better get ready to flip your Bibles, okay? You better be ready to do that. Now look back at John 12, 27. As the hour approaches, as this hour of his, of his ultimate humiliation approaches, Jesus confesses that his soul is troubled. He, he knows what he must soon endure. Now remember, especially you, those of us who are evangelicals, I think we have far less problems accepting the idea of Jesus' deity than we do of embracing his humanity. Remember that he's fully God and fully man, and his soul is troubled. And in John 12, 27, he prays, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For it is for this purpose for which I have come to this hour, Therefore, Father, therefore, Father, glorify your name. So here in John 17, Jesus commits himself to displaying the Father's glory by fulfilling theirs, the triune God's covenant promise to save their people, to save you, from sin's curse and power. He is the long-promised Lamb of God. He's come to be the final sacrifice for sins. In just a few hours, he will bear your sins by going to the cross and suffering the penalty merited by your rebellion against the one by whom and for whom you were made. 
For you, he will die, die a horrible, horrible death. He'll be buried in a borrowed tomb. And by doing so, both the Father and the Son will be glorified by visibly showing that the triune God keeps his covenant promises to redeem for himself a people. Keeps his covenant promise to redeem for himself you, his people. Now look at verse 2. John 17, verse 2. He will do all this having been given by the Father the authority, given by the Father absolute authority over all flesh, over all of creation. Now, weeks earlier, are you ready? Weeks earlier in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus testifies, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now listen to what he says. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Listen to what he says. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now what would you do? What would you do if you had the authority to do whatever you wanted. <laughs> That's the authority that Jesus has. And Jesus tells the Father he's going to use his absolute authority to give eternal life to those the Father has given him. Jesus will exercise his absolute authority by willingly laying down his life and taking it up again. He will do this for your sake so that he might procure for you the gift of eternal life by graciously sending the Holy Spirit to enable you to see, to see his glory, to see that Jesus is your God, he's your Savior, he's your Lord, he's your King. In verse 3, you're told that eternal life is the reward of intimately knowing both the Father and the Son. And in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, you're taught that that intimate knowledge of the Father and Son is yours because the Spirit of glory rests upon you. The Spirit of glory Gives you eyes to see, a heart to believe, a will to obey. God the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind and heart to know and believe that God the Father sent God the Son to deliver you from the dominion of darkness and to bring you into his eternal kingdom. And knowing, believing, all that to be true, you bow before him and you rise up to do his bidding. Now just listen, you don't need to turn here. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet sees the glory of the Lord. You remember the passage. 
And knowing his sin, he is undone. But the Lord commands that a coal be taken from the altar, you know, from that place of sacrifice that anticipates the coming day when the final sacrifice for sin will be offered up once and for all. The Lord orders that a a coal be taken from the altar and pressed to Isaiah's lips, symbolically cleansing him of his sins. And Isaiah responds by telling the Lord, here am I. Send me to do your bidding. So likewise, because you know and believe that Jesus' fiery death cleanses you from all sin, you, like Isaiah, say to him, if you truly believe the gospel, if you are truly in awe, of the grace and love and mercy of the triune God. Like Isaiah, you say, here am I. Send me to do your bidding. Now look at verse 5. Jesus asked the Father to restore to him the glory that was his before the earth was created. Now remember, remember what we read in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, you're told that in becoming a man, he emptied himself of the glory that was his from eternity past. Now, remember what I told you about Isaiah seeing the glory of the Lord, okay? Keep that in mind, and now I'm going to ask you to turn to John 12, 41. John 12, 41. Remember, remember what we talked about, about Isaiah seeing the glory of the Lord. Well, look at what you're told in John 12, 41. You're told in John 12, 41, that the glory Isaiah witnessed was in fact the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the glory that Jesus now asks the Father to restore to him. The glory that Jesus asks to be his once more as he returns to the Father's right hand. Remember that, it, that, that John's gospel, John begins his gospel by testifying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John seven, chapter 1, verse 17, John tells us bluntly that Word is Jesus, the one who was in the beginning with God, was God. Now we're going to cheat, okay? Every once in a while I like to cheat. Any of you like to cheat once? You know, I play games with my grandkids and I like to cheat every once in a while, you know. <laughs> just, you know, when, just on the sly, you know, just to keep them humble. So, so we're going to cheat right now. Look ahead to John 17, verse 24. I want you to see that after all this talk about seeing the Lord's glory, of seeing the glory of Jesus, Jesus asks the Father, Jesus asks the Father on your behalf. 
that one day you will be allowed to see the visible splendor of his heavenly glory. And interestingly, the apostle who writes this gospel will tell us in his first epistle that one day you shall see him as he is. Wow. <laughs> That's beyond our ability to comprehend. But it is the promise. So in these opening words of our Lord's Prayer, Jesus prays that his and the Father's glory be visibly displayed by Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and promised return. And so I ask you, do you see it? Do you see the glory? Has the Holy Spirit given you eyes to see who the Father is, who the Son is? Do you believe that Jesus is God come in human flesh to display his and the Father's glory by bringing to fruition his covenant promise to rescue you from sin's curse and power and to bless you with the gift of eternal life. That is a glorious message. Do you see the glory? If you do, then with me you're humbled, you're awed, you're grateful. If you do, then like Isaiah, you're eager to show by all you do and say in the days, weeks, and months ahead to show the glory of your creator, savior, Lord, and king to all you come in daily contact. Now, if you don't yet see it, if you can't yet see the glory of the triune God, I pray the Holy Spirit of glory will open your eyes renew your hearts, redirect your wills, that you will see him, that you will know who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do so that you might be saved from sin's curse and power so that you might be made willing to eagerly serve your one true king so that you might be blessed to know that he has purchased for you the gift of eternal life, that he has purchased that gift at the cost of his agonizingly shed blood. Believers, my brothers and my sisters, as we listen, as Jesus prays here in John 17, as our as our minds and hearts are ignited anew by the blaze of his glory. What else can we say but this? To God the Father, to God the Son, to God the Holy Spirit, to our triune God, be all glory, honor, and praise. Jesus, to think that you prayed for us. Jesus, to think that you now continue to intercede on our behalf. 
Jesus, to realize you know us by name and you pray for us. Father, fill us with a recognition of your glory so that before you we might bow. And having bowed, that we might rise up and say to you as Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Send me to do your bidding. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.